Hello and welcome to the Brothers F Bookcast. Uh, today we're in for a special treat. Uh, my brother successfully hazed me into reading one of my own stories, actually, uh, for for today's uh, in today's episode. Uh, I'm not much of a writer. I think this is the only short story I've ever written start to finish. But we thought it'd be nice to to read through the story, and then we'll we'll go on with the normal podcast afterwards. The rest of my brothers will join in and we'll discuss it. Um, anyways, to begin, uh, the story is called Idle Fantasy. I wrote it at about my senior year of high school. I remember, I think at the time I was in a uh, creative writing English class, and I had all these ideas bouncing around in my head, and I thought it'd be a fun little project. So anyways, I'll dive right in. The grass had been freshly mown, and the smell only added to the flamboyantly staged spring afternoon. A little ways away, a brook bubbled, supporting the birds and deer and all the other little woodland creatures, but no hares. They'd been aggressively culled by the landscaper. They were no good for the lawn. Chubby little Hunter Wesson sat beneath an oak tree at the top of a grassy hill, reading a book, another in the wings for whenever he finished the first. He put down the novel for a bit and glanced at his watch, noting, with the wrinkling of his nose, that dinner wouldn't be for another couple of hours. He yawned, stretched, wiped his glasses with the hem of his shirt, and stopped to look around. The rolling acres were as pretty as always. Nothing ever changed in that view from the oak. The grass, the trees, the flower beds in the distance, the hedges, all were immaculate and fixed. It was beautiful. He picked up the book again and found his page. Suddenly, a chirrup interrupted him. He rose, worried that he might be within range of a bird in the boughs, then he heard the sound again. He paused. It had a strange trilling quality, hard to pin down in his head, and he couldn't see anything in the oak. Up the trunk there was a small hole. Hunter set his books down in a fold in the roots, stepped up onto the base of the tree, and tried to look in, but it was too high for him to see. He reached up, but then his hand wavered at the opening, as he worried that some wounded animal might claw its way down in fear, but the curiosity overcame him. He slowly inserted his hand and then yowled in pain and yanked it out because it bit him. The damn thing bit him, and his hand hurt like it had been stung. He sucked at the injury for a bit, then looked at it over. It was a bite mark, a human bite mark. Not half as big as a dime, but bruised in an unmistakable pattern. For a moment, Hunter gazed at the hole in the trunk, uncertain what to think. Then he ran back to the house as quickly as his asthma would let him, returning with a covered jar. He eyed the hole, still huffing with the effort of the trip, and began to feel a little silly. It was impossible, he thought. After all, those things only happen in stories. They couldn't happen. They didn't exist. But he unscrewed the jar anyways and set it on the grass. He worked his way up the trunk, this time high enough so he could look partway into the cavity. There he saw a faint glow, flickering, fluttering. He grinned. He grabbed an overhanging branch to steady himself, primed his arm by the opening, and threw his hand inside, grabbing at the source of the light, and the source kicked and squirmed and squawked. He hadn't expected the damn thing to be so slippery, but within a few tries he got a firm grip on it and leapt down from the tree to stuff it in the jar and imprison it. He sat for a moment, not daring to look. Then he crouched down to the jar and said a thing he'd never said before. Holy shit. He caught a fairy. 
There was no time to dawdle. He put the jar in his nightstand as soon as he came back to the house and ran back downstairs to dinner. His father was still at work, and his two older brothers were still out with friends, but his mother had already come back from her job, so Hunter was her sole victim for the dinner's conversation. His brooding made her anxious. How was your day, Hunter? Fine. Fine? Yeah. You didn't do anything fun? I read. She sensed an opening. Ah, what's that you're reading now? That, that one with the dragons? Which one? She floundered. You know, you, you were talking about it all last week. It's got the dragon and the wizard and something. Birthright? I think so. I finished that one. Oh, there was a pause. Did you like it? It was really cool, he said. I'm on the third book of the series when the Dragon Master tries to stop the Elvish War. It's... He halted. May I be excused? Why? I, I'm full, and I've got homework to do. You've got all of tomorrow to do it, Hunter. It's only Saturday. Yeah, I want to get ahead. Mr. Richmond gave us a bunch of Latin vocab to learn. Mrs. Wesson looked to her kid over. Go then, but actually work. Don't let me catch you wasting time. Away ran Hunter, up the stairs, two at a time, through the hallways, almost tearing the art from the walls until he came to his room. He flicked on the light and went to his nightstand. The glow, he noticed, was almost imperceptible. He panicked for a full minute, unsure how to solve his problem, shaking the jar, tapping the glass, until he realized his mistake. He went over to a drawer and pulled out a shining penknife, a birthday present from his uncle back in February. He rushed back to the jar and stabbed a hole in the lid, twisting at the metal, making an air hole, and then another, and another, and another. Then he unscrewed the lid and dumped the limp body onto his hand, desperate for a response. For a moment, he could see the details of the creature. Its skin was grayer than his, greener too, and it was clothed by a tattered hemp skirt. Its legs were disproportionately stubby, and its arms long and spidery. But that was a human figure, however distorted it might have seemed, and the dull glow shining from spots on its back and the transparent long wings spoke of magic. It had to be a fairy. In that moment, as the creature lay barely alive in Hunter's palm, he grew fearful. He laid down the body and looked around for something to revive it. Water? He ran to the bathroom and came back with a cupped hand of the coldest and splashed it onto the fairy, then grabbed a pencil and poked it. It stirred. He was exhilarated. The light was slowly getting stronger. Perhaps it would live. So he picked it up carefully and dropped it back in the jar. He tried to forget about it, and he went and read in the library for a bit. He walked the dog, anything he could, because waiting for the little thing to rouse itself was too nerve-wracking. A few hours later, the sun went down, and Hunter came back to his room. He saw the jar still there, the slightest of movements within. It was awake. Hunter started. The fairy sat up and stared. He couldn't read the creature's face, whether it was angry or scared. The features were too alien. The eyes were buggy and oversized, and the bro neanderthalic. His hair was clumped into long, thin strands from its balding head, and it had no ears, but its mouth, wide and thin, stretched in a fake grin from where they ought to have been. Hunter poked the glass. How are you feeling? It stared. Sorry for the yanking, he continued. I... I, uh, just... 
He was put off by its stoic expression. He tapped the glass again. It never blinked. It locked its eyes into Hunter, unnerving him, and it followed Hunter's pacing back and forth for minutes. It never twitched. Hunter sat down from his bed. Where are you from? Are you from the tree? Are there more of you? I mean, you are a fairy. You, you glow and all. I've seen your wings. Where do you live? For a moment, Hunter felt annoyed. Then he rationalized, thinking that perhaps it must not be able to talk. It was injured. It was just a matter of time. So he put the jar on top of a bookshelf and let it be. Sometimes he caught it walking, or even buzzing its wings. He'd see it try to escape, tapping on the lid of the jar or yanking on the metal of the air holes. Its hands were usually bloody from the efforts, and reddish-purple scabs covered them. Whenever it saw Hunter, it would stop and stare with that same face, so stoic. Every once in a while, Hunter would sit down and try to talk with it, and try and learn something, but it either didn't understand or refused to respond. Hunter suspected the latter. After certain questions, he'd see a little flutter of the wings, the only gesture that it might let slip, and in that he saw insolence. After a week of this pattern, Hunter noticed a change. The fairy was starving. Its cheeks were gaunt, its pacing slowed, its efforts to escape even more pitiable than before. A part of Hunter wanted to wait it out longer, but he couldn't let the thing die, so he went out and picked up as big a variety of plants as he could. A few flowers, grasses, leaves, and a bunch of pine needles, and to top off the bouquet he took an apple from his kitchen. He returned to his jar and set the stuff in front of it. Do you want some? The fairy was as still as a stone. Hunter lifted up the flowers and leaves, each in turn, and presented them to the creature, to no response. He grabbed the apple, pulled out his penknife, and gouged out a little bit of fruit, as big as his thumb, which he presented to the fairy. Stiffly, the little creature stood up. Hunter's heart skipped a beat. It was interaction. Finally, it had responded. It rested its spindly hand on the wall of the jar and bared its teeth in, was it a grin? A grimace? Hunter didn't know quite what, but he saw the emaciated frame of the fairy. He counted the ribs on its chest and he went for it. He unscrewed the jar, but held the lid down and lifted it up to his face. They saw each other. Hunter thought it nodded almost. So he set the jar back down, held his breath and lifted the lid. The fairy shot out, screeching, and Hunter fell over backwards. Its wings buzzed with a grating metallic noise, and the glow was too bright to look at, and it flew at the windows, slamming itself again and again against the panes, rapping on the glass with clenched little fists, rattling the blinds on each pass. Hunter panicked. He chased after the creature, reeling from the light, making blind grabs at the noises. He screamed at it, making unintelligible, pathetic sounds that pleaded for it to stop, to settle, to eat but mainly to stop, to no avail. He scanned the room in hopes of an answer and nothing good showed itself, so in fear he grabbed the book and threw it at the light. Hunter had, hadn't ever thrown anything in his entire life with so much power. The book thudded, the rattling stopped, and the light fell to the floor and dimmed to a whisper of itself. Hunter still couldn't see well, but he groped his way back to the jar, spilled to the floor, thankfully intact.
He went to the center of the room. Through the throbbing haze, he saw blood, maybe a thimbleful, leaking out onto the floor from the fairy's head. So he grabbed a penknife again and cut out a swath of cloth from his bedsheet to wrap up the wound. Then he heard someone coming, and he panicked again. So he slid the fairy and all the mess under the bed as best he could. Hunter's older brother slammed the door open to find Hunter standing awkwardly in the middle of the room. The fuck is going on? Hunter paused. I'm working on my singing. Bullshit, what the fuck were you doing? Why are you so pale? Don't use those words, Aiden. Mom doesn't like it when you use those words. Shut up, what's going on? I was playing some music and... Music? That wasn't music. I, I was playing music. It's new stuff like electro, but it's it's more modern. And that was music. What was it? Dubstep? Yeah. You were listening to dubstep? Yeah. Bullshit. I mean, like, it's, it's new. Like, Aiden looked over his little brother, gave a restrained sigh, and relaxed. Get a better taste of music. And turn the volume down. Jeez. Hunter waited a second as he left, then paced around the room, breathing heavily. Then he reached down below his bed, grabbed the fairy, and looked at it. The bandage was loose. He fixed it carefully and set the limp body down on his desk. For a moment, he considered his secret. He scanned his four-inch devil. He couldn't let that happen again. Hunter reached out a hand to the fairy, trembling. He steeled himself then reached down to stretch out and expose its wing. It had to be done. So he pulled out his penknife again and hovered it over the wing. The base, that was where the joint should be. That made the most sense. He paused. It's for the best, he thought. Hunter closed his eyes and cut off the wing. The fairy immediately came to life, its pallid, drooling face now contorted into the unmistakable look of torture. It screeched and it thrashed wildly, hoping to escape the pain. Hunter gave a strained gasp, but held it down and offed the second wing, poorly, missing the base and cutting at the transparent fibers and purple veins, tearing off the last bit by accident before he'd properly finished the amputation. The light and noise filled the room. Stop it, said Hunter. Stop it. Stop. Just just stop, he sobbed. Damn it. Just stop, please. I, I gotta. I'm not. Just please. From his room across the house, Aiden yelled, Dickhead, turn it down! It took him another week before he could take down the jar from the shelf to look at it again. By then, the fairy was dead, completely lightless and cold, so he took the jar outside to the oak tree where he'd found it. He tore a hole in the lawn near the tree's base and pulled at the dirt and roots with his fingers until he had a small pit. He dumped out the fairy's emaciated body, laid it in the soil, and covered it. Hunter pulled the penknife from his pocket and carved a crooked cross into the bark behind it, as best as he could. For a moment, he kneeled there, staring at his work. He noticed a bit of dried blood on his penknife, stuck on the previously immaculate hinge, black and crusted after the week. His eyes grew watery, and he threw the knife away, and he paced around the tree, muttering swears and hiccuping. Through the emotion, he noticed the books he'd been reading that day he'd found the fairy. Mediocre sequels to mediocre books, all of which he'd read a hundred times, forgotten in the excitement of that day. He flipped one open. It was ruined. The pages had been soaked and dried by some rain. The words were almost unreadable at points. 
He grabbed the pages and ripped them out, then ripped the fragments up, then threw the binding at the tree, and threw it again as far away as he could. Then he went home. The end. So when I I read this before listening to it, and I really liked it. I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I'm pumped to be reading it. I mean, it had been years since I'd read it. I thought it was it was pretty grim, you know? I guess, I don't know, going through the creative writing class, I thought making things that were brutal meant that they were better, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, Drew, what was going through your head? I mean, I, mean, I think on. if something can move you a lot, that's impressive. I think it's a great story, Ange. Yeah. Well, I'm relieved. Uh, Relieved to hear that because I was gonna be. I was worried it was just gonna be just me who liked it, but I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I liked it as much as as some of the stories that we've read by professionals. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. So, like, very very well written. Thanks, guys. Yeah, you got a nice timing. Like, I I, I thought the first page or really landed right up to the line. Uh, holy shit! He he said he had caught a fairy. Like that had a really nice rhythm to it. Oh, thank you. I agree. That's a great way to start the story. It also felt a little bit like a fairy tale, which was cool. Like there were little, there were a few little things you snuck in there. For example, after dinner, you said "Away, ran hunter," and I thought that was just kind of nice. It seemed like uh, a story from a different time, which obviously resonates with the you know the su- the subject. So it, very very cool. You know, it definitely felt like a uh, like a Grimm's fairy tale. Definitely one of the Grimm's ones from thirteen hundreds, but it still felt that way. So. You succeeded in one thing. Mm. Yeah, it was. It was also interesting how I, I don't know just how it progressed. Like how he had kept it in his room. The 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 fairy was dying, and then he he I guess he just opens up the jar, and there's just just like the screech and like it, and and he doesn't and the blinding light, and then that that all happens like within a paragraph, I think, and like that's that's kind of like I don't know. It was it was a very good climax to the story, basically. I, I thought. And it happened so quickly, but with such vivid detail. Like, I think the quickness, like, this is going to sound odd, but the way you phrase, like, you frame the climax of the story, like, the fact that it happened so quickly just made me imagine the fairy flying even quickly. Like, it made me picture, like, I was there that it did happen that quickly, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Diego, don't, don't, that's not odd. That's, like... A very creative use of writing, Andrew. So your creative writing teacher should have been proud. Mm. We'll tell that to uh, good old, good old Mr. Leo. Mm. So actually, this is an interesting situation we're in because I remember when Carlos back in in high school when you started the philosophy club, quote unquote, a big throwback. There was a week that you guys did. Wait, what matter? Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, Juan just started a philosophy club. Yeah, isn't that hilarious? It was barely a philosophy club. <laughs> listen, listen. If you started a philosophy club, you clearly were not bullied enough in high school. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, friend. It was uh, it was more of a ping pong club, hmm. but it looked impressive at least. You I remember know, Doc, you know what I, philosophy club sounds like to me. What it sounds like? It sounds like something that a bunch of people would do to consume a certain illicit substance together. Mm, okay. <laughs> oh, thanks for that, friend. <laughs> Use this episode with the language and the. Oof. I know, I know. We have to put the explicit tag on this one for sure. Yeah, I feel bad. All of, all of mom's friends are going to think I'm a total delinquent now. No, well, mom's friends are like that's like the majority of our listener base. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> maybe we should have maybe we should have pandered more to them. 
Yeah. Wait, I could I can read a new version with minced oaths. How about that? Um, we, we, well, maybe I'll bleep it out. That'd be funny. Um, <laughs> that would be hilarious. I get post, I'll bleep it out. <laughs> I was about to say, Andrew, this would be a great episode for you to edit first. Oh, we my God. That, uh, the pain. These little offhand things like, oh, let me just take that again. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, actually, yes. You you need to. You need to. You need oh, to right. Oh, no. oh, my goodness. Oh, you're right. I have to learn how to edit. I downloaded Audacity, and it looks like... Um, they haven't upgraded their interface since like the 80s or something. I'm, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Audacity is great, guys. Don't knock. That's how you know it's legit, though. Like sometimes I there's a coding language called MATLAB. And maybe there's like newer interfaces. But when I open MATLAB, it looks like I'm in. It actually looks exactly like I'm on the computers from Jurassic Park. Oh, like I, the, I was just thinking that. I was literally just thinking that. Those 1990s uh, computers. So it's cool. You know, you feel closer to the machine. So. Having established that I really enjoyed the story and that was sincere, that wasn't just me being nice because you're we're, you're my brother, we're doing the podcast. What are things that didn't work for people? Because there was a couple little things that, that took me out of the story. I think the brother could probably go, to be honest, almost entirely, or at least it didn't need to be as big of a deal as it was. I didn't really understand why, why he was there. Uh, and I wasn't sure he added that much. I think at most he could come in and be like, Hey, what are you guys? What are you yelling about? And he could say, "Oh, nothing," and then and then go right back into the story. But the intensity of the story and the part that had me hooked was, you know, having the fairy captured there. You know what? I think that was Andrew because Andrew and I, when I was like about what, like, what five, four, what right around when you were writing this, Andrew? You were way older than that, but but okay. <laughs> no, no, maybe it wasn't right around when we were writing this. But when I was younger, like four or five or whatever. We had like a really bad relationship where I would rat on you all the time and you hated it. Really? Yeah. There's no memory of this. You don't remember this? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a really bad relationship. Maybe we had a, like our normal quibbles as brothers. A little bit more than quibbles. But anyways, I thought it kind of sounded like that. Maybe you were channeling your inner Andrew. Yeah, it's funny. You know, like when I was writing that story and th that scene in the room, uh, I, my mental model of the room was our childhood room growing up because I just needed some like sense of, I don't know, geometry or someone bursting in the room. And it, it doesn't really show in the story because those details don't matter. But that was just the image I had in my head of someone breaking into that room being like, what's going on in here? Interesting point that the, uh, the brother could probably just go. And you're totally right. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't like add very much to the story. Well, I, I'm of two minds about the brother. Uh, on the one hand, yes, he took me out of the story. Like, there's a lot of things about that scene kind of pulled me out of the story. So maybe there's, there's something there that needs to be reworked. Like, first of all, like, Electro. Like, I, I like I had to take, like, a five-second double take there. <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> electro. Electro, dubstep, whatever. Yeah, no, uh, and, like, I had to Google dubstep, which is apparently a real thing. But instead of thinking, like, about the story or being in the story, I was like, what's Electro? Um, what's dubstep? And the swearing, the swearing pulled me out a little bit, not to be uh, uh, priggish, but it was like, it was a little, like, it didn't feel like totally authentic. Yeah. It's one of those things that upon rereading, I'm like, I totally would have, would have cut like 90% of this, uh, of the swearing, at least I, the brother didn't occur to me, but the swearing, it was like, that it was, it's kind of like gratuitous to a certain extent. Well, hey, it, it high school, Andrew, you're trying to be shocking. I was trying to be shocking. I was trying to be edgy. You can't be shocking with an F-bomb anymore. 
<laughs> that's true. It's so it's so yeah. tired. Like you, you, they've ruined all the taboos. You need to you need to maintain the taboos. Like there needs to be consequences for f bombs. Like we should bring back like the um, what's that medieval thing they had where they'd stick people's head and arms inside a wooden block and they throw tomatoes. Stocks. Stocks. We should bring back the stocks for f bombs, and then f bombs would be taboo. Like if you were risking the stocks to write a story with an f bomb. That would be something. Yeah, and it packs a punch. It would mean something, yeah. But anyway... Uh, Andres, so what, am, what grade were you in? I'm, I am of two minds about the brother thing because while it did pull me out of the story, the, the fact that he was hearing it as music, like as like weird, strange music, that that was plausible at all, like that just added to the, the, the weirdness of the story. Right? This is like a weird creature. Like it's a little Neanderthal. Its skin is green and gray at the same time and it's making metallic sounds and when it moves there's light in the room that is weird like this is one weird fairy so like that worked for me uh but maybe there's a way to convey that weirdness that doesn't pull the reader or at least me doesn't pull me out of the story yeah totally totally and now i honestly could go back and rework those bits it's my story so i can do what i want Nice. Wow, that, that, that phrase is the same energy as the F-bombs. <laughs> Sorry, Fran. Uh, Diego, you asked a little bit ago, like, what grade was I in? Yeah, what, what, how, what grade? I think I was in 12th grade. I might have started it in 11th grade, to be honest. I forget the details of, of when I started and finished. But I know for sure that I, I read it to that creative writing class in, in my senior year of high school. You know, it, was it in fall or spring i think in the fall i don't know for oh, sure okay because i don't know i i got the vibe that this had all the like writings of i don't know it, it sounded like something you would have finished and read in senior spring when you just don't give an f about what you put in your stories you just want them to be I, because i don't mean like f as in like it was extremely well written but like you're okay throwing some swears in there like <laughs> it's senior spring now you know what i mean like who gives an F, you know? <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's so funny because like, you know, as as a 12th grader, you think the edgiest thing in the world is throwing a few F-bombs into your story, you know, class it up a bit, make it adult. But really, the effect is just to make it much more juvenile than it otherwise would have been. But yeah, in my defense, I have not changed the story at all since then. So yeah, that being said, I want to say immediately following that, none, almost maybe with the exception of the swears, I'm not even sure I agree with you guys on that. The story does not feel juvenile at all. It's like very, very impressively written. Um, I think if I were to look back on things that I'd written in high school, I would probably, I would probably maybe not regret them, you know, because whatever, like you did the best you could at that age. But I don't think I would have, I, I think, I think it would show a lot more than, Ooh. Uh, than this show. challenging? You're going to write a short story for next week's smoosh? What, Joe? I'm I'm, I'm down for that. I do have a short story in the works. We can talk. We can. We can. We, we should can. have. We should have an episode where we we dig up our uh, our juvenilia and we we find we find the most, oh god we we find the most cringe things that we've written. Oh, I have said so, cringe things. Let me just say that I I took um nonfiction writing, which was it was not creative writing, but it had kind of a similar vibe um, with Mister Zaymore. And the class almost encouraged people to really push the envelope. So I'm pretty sure if I went back and read some of my work and heard some of the work of my peers, we would all be like, oh. 
my gosh. You should do it. What was I doing? You should do it. Mr. Zamor really liked people to go above and like really push the envelope, try to get reactions from the class, you know, try to reflect on those life experiences that really impacted you. But then some people, you know, started to craft their things more to get a reaction rather than, oh man, I, I, I don't think I'd like to go back to my old stuff. Tiago, you got to do it. Embrace the cringe. Uh, fortunately, I'm like three laptops removed from that. So <laughs> two, two, three laptops removed from that. So I don't think I, I can recover those files. Yeah, you can, Diego. There's always a way. Fran, what about you? You grew up the longest ago of any of us here. So, I mean, there, there must be some, some great content out there. I, I recall personally, I mean, we don't have to get into this, but we've got some pretty funny family, vi- family videos bouncing around. Um, and one of the key ones, one of the, the key key pieces of the whole thing, I think, is Fran's performance in a sixth grade version oh. of Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, I guess that's a masterpiece. There's nothing cringy about that. It's actually like you were incredibly talented at that age, at any age. But that's just a cool thing from our past. Yeah. I'm not sure how it fits in with the the rest of the podcast. But yeah, I, I personally, you know, I recently rewatched that video. And I must say, I was unimpressed with myself. Oh, friend. You're too oh, honest. you're too humble. But, but no, no, yeah, sorry. It's bringing this a little off track. But, but my point is, what do you remember, if anything, from your past that you think you would, you would, uh, you would wince a little looking back on it? Oh, I, I wrote some terrible stuff. I wrote, I wrote a short story when I was in high school about a, a Johnny Sublime. I don't even want to... I mean that's not recoverable. Is it is it based off of the band Sublime? Like any any influence there? No, know? no, no influence oh. there. Um, and then what else did I write? Oh, I have I have a funny story here. Actually, I remember Fran when you were in college, you would write you were writing a novel, and you made kind of a big to do about this. It was like the adult novel. How the, could we forget? <laughs> <the adult novel. laughs> And all of us were like, wow, Fran's writing a novel. Fran, can we read it? And you'd be like, no, it's kind of a novel for adults. So we're like, wow, an adult novel. <laughs> <laughs> and then we go to our, like, you know, our elementary school, which is, like, run by a bunch of nuns. And we went around saying, like, remember Francisco? Yeah, he's writing an adult novel. <laughs> <laughs> the adult novel. <laughs> Man, wasn't it about a guy named Carlos Scully? I don't want to put you on the spot. We don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. Oh, yeah, but, you know, I wrote, like, this is, this is like, I'm sure it was terrible, but I wrote, like, 600, 700,000 words, and I, oh, wow. I lost the file. Oh. Sure. No, no, for real. For real, I did. Wait, wow. a lot of words. That's an insane number of words. Yeah, it's a novel's worth. Wait. That's like a shortish novel, yeah. Six hundred thousand words is a short novel. That's insane. Oh no 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 no! Sorry, I misspoke. I'm tired, guys. I, Sixty thousand words. Six. Okay, okay. I was like, friend. Oh my god. No, six hundred thousand words. That would be a tragedy if I lost that. Um, yeah. No matter what's in there, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's got to be something good in there. <laughs> No, no, yeah, not definitely not six hundred thousand. I'm tired, guys. I'm so tired. It's been a rough. No, no, we, 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 there's mercy. There's mercy in this podcast. Really, where? Not for the fairy. <laughs> That's true. Andrew, it was a really kind of crushing story. I have to say, I was pretty hooked. 
And by the end, I had a bit of a knot in my stomach. Yeah, it's kind of messed up. It is kind of messed up, but that's kind of like, I had a certain thing in mind when I was getting at that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the metafiction is a little bit on the nose, but it worked. Frankly, for a creative writing class, it was very creative. Oh, thank you, DH. Right? It was, it was very creative. I could see you trying to be like Vogue, you know what I mean? What does that mean? <laughs> like, in the section with uh, senior... Well, no, no, no. I guess for that, you really have to be like 10th grade. What? Vogue, edgy, dark. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, anyways, guys, the point I brought before about Juan Carlos's philosophy club, right? I remember distinctly one day, one of our one of our teachers being super impressed, saying like, guess what they discussed this week? It was in art, what matters more, the reception or the author's intention? I remember and that. The teacher found this super, it's just, just mind-blowing that... These, these young savants were sitting around discussing the deep mysteries of, of the universe. But I, I, I figured it'd be good to get your guys' input on this story. Like, what do you think it meant? What, what did the details mean to you? And we'll see if it was the same as what I had sort of intended. I have a hot take, but go ahead. Let me, let me give my take first, because it's a, it's, a, it's a cold it's take, a cold or take. it's a lukewarm take. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. And then the hot, take, the hot take will, make, will, will, will pack more of a punch. My coldish take, my cool take, is that it is just a way of turning on its head like what you would expect, I guess. That, that's not a very good way of describing it. But if I were to describe the story to somewhere, someone else and I started describing it, I would say, there's this boy, he's in this very beautiful place. By the way, I love the opening. Fran mentioned this and I agree. All the opening up until the moment where he says, I caught a fairy, it feels kind of like magical, enchanted, and it's really cool. If you were to describe the story to someone else and you talk about this boy in this beautiful place and he catches a fairy, that person thinks that, and the reader thinks the story is totally going in one direction. You know, is he going to, is he going to build like a friendship with this fairy? Is the fairy going to show him something else? And so he has this totally magical thing. And then it just goes like a totally, a completely different direction, really sort of like the opposite of what it should be. Right. It's like the opposite of enchanted. It's cursed. It's the opposite of joyful. It's tragic. So it's just kind of a way of turning a normal trope or idea on its head in a pretty powerful way. That wasn't a cold take. That was a good take. That was a hot take. Thanks, Fran. For Philosophy Club, it was a cold take. <laughs> <laughs> were there at least were there at least snacks at Philosophy Club? Was tell me it was an excuse to eat. Uh, did we have a philosophy club? I don't remember. One cool thing we did at Philosophy Club, it actually was decent looking back on it. First off, we did play a lot of ping pong by the end. More senior spring, to your point, Diego. But second off, we did do a lot of discussion. One of the best discussions we had was this question about the intention of the author or the artist versus the interpretation of the reader or the viewer. Um, and another cool thing we did would be because we didn't want people to get too defensive when they brought up questions, we would write questions on a piece of paper, fold them up, and then put them in a hat. And then we would just draw a question. And we ended up having some pretty good discussions. Obviously, it was a little circular. Like sometimes we would just kind of, you know, be hashing out the same points over and over again and talking past each other a little bit. But I think it was pretty good. I think it got us thinking, which is which is important. We should do that uh, for the pod the next time we read someone's fiction. That way we can, we can all say what we really think. Not that I'm not doing that right now. <laughs> yeah. Do you have much of a filter right now, Fran? Not that you're yeah, not doing that right now. <laughs> not that you're not. not. Uh, anyway, Fran, what's your take? My, uh, okay, my, my take. My, go ahead. Wait, no, because I don't. Well, actually, no, never mind. Go for it. Go for it. 
No, no, no. Well, fine. Um, my take is that it's a sad little boy who, um, you know, Andrew said he's chubby, he has asthma, glasses, reads corny fiction, finds a fairy. Um, so that's kind of looking up, then realizes that the fairy's a total jerk. His brother's a total jerk. His dad's his dad's working at least for the entire time of the story, and his mom's like trying to be nice to him, but he refuses to accept his mom's kindness. Ends up killing the fairy, and yeah, it's a very sad story in my take. That was a cold take. <laughs> Ouch! Ouch, Ouch friend. To be, to be fair, when I said cold, I didn't mean bad. I just meant like not that unusual, like most uncontroversial. People. Yeah, uncontroversial. That's the best word for it. Thank That's you. That's what I thought. Francisco, oh, what? No, no, no. You're confusing hot and cold takes with uh, novelty takes. The novelty take is, is controversial. So you had a non-novelty take. Are hot takes not controversial also? They can be. They, can, they don't have to be. They just have to be. They just have to be right and stimulating. Wait, 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 wait. I thought hot takes were controversial. Cold takes we just made up, and I've never heard of. No, 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 no. A hot take is basically a good take. A cold okay. take is basically a bad take, and a novelty take is well, it's what it sounds like. But what, what about a lukewarm take? Neither good nor bad, mediocre take. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're really right the way we use hot take, Fran. I feel like it's whenever somebody says something that's like a little controversial, pushing the envelope. We say that is a hot take. Yeah. Whenever someone says something that is like plainly true, they're like, "That's a pretty lukewarm take." Well, well we we have lowbrow, highbrow, and mediumbrow. Yeah, we can have cold take, hot take, and lukewarm take, and novelty takes. Don't forget about the novelty takes. Sure, novelty takes. We have them all. We have warm takes. What's a lukewarm take for my for my area? But I, this looks, now I'm dying to know. What is your opinion about Andrew's story? I don't think yeah, we've been we're gonna be distracted. Fred, please. Oh, no, no, no. I, I mean I'm gonna start, but I, I assume Wampi has something to say before I continue. No, he gave his take. I, I just said my take. I'm just bancing you because you interrupted me twice. Oh sorry. <laughs> I realized after that I interrupted you and I, I I'm sorry. I, I, I just didn't want to take out because I knew your take was gonna be all philosophical and good. No, just you know, just you know, a little self flagellation and we'll call it even. Um Self what? <laughs> it's a fancy way of saying uh, you have to you have to whip yourself a little bit, Da Vinci Code style. Um, so basically, the take is this: so you're not you're not wrong. Like the kid's chubby, he's got asthma. He's basically the opposite of a fantasy hero, right? He's sitting there in a bench next to a tree. And everything's a little bit too manicured. Everything's a little bit too perfect. And he's not exactly living his life. He's reading a book. In a place that he's read a book before. Doesn't have friends. He isn't in shape. And all of a sudden, into this sort of boring life where he's not really the hero of his story, there intrudes a fairy. It looks like things are going to get interesting. Things are going to get enchanted. Maybe he's going to be the hero of a story now. And ultimately, as, as Juancho points out, he's not. He's not the hero of the story. He's the villain. Like He does something really grotesque and evil. And he can't... He's trying to tame the magic, right? He wants to keep the fairy in a jar. He wants to cut off his wings. When he sees that the fairy is starving to death, the natural thing to think is, okay, you know, I, there was a line in there. It's like he knew what he had to do. And I was like, oh, he's going to let it go. He knows that he needs to release the fairy. No, no, 
right? He 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 doesn't he doesn't uh, release the fairy. He cuts off his wings and 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 murders the fairy. And so, you know, his his relationship with fantasy is distorted, right? It's been destroying his life before then because he's out of shape and he's got asthma and 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 he's not participating in his life. He's not the hero of his own story. And then when he finally has this opportunity, when he when he's there with this thing, he's he wants to keep it tamed. He wants to keep it manicured, like the like the gardens he's observing when he's reading. And then he's he 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 ends up destroying the magic. Why why? Because he's too rigid. He can't he can't accept that there are things in his life that he can't control. He can't accept that there are things that are messy and he can't I don't know. It's not coming out right. But basically, it's, 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 it's about the way fiction was destroying this kid's life, right? Fiction is this controlled world, and reality isn't controlled, right? His idea of what this experience should be based on the fiction destroys the actual experience. That's good. Arthur, Arthur what do you think about that? So I don't want to, don't want to, like, it, hmm. I don't want to give something and say like that's the definitive interpretation and all other interpretations are wrong. Oh, come on, Andrew. And basically, I nailed it, right? Well, yeah, Fran, you kind of nailed it. I will say, I think there's, there's, I know, I wouldn't have phrased it quite the way you phrased it. So definitely, you're right. I was going for that. This is a kid grew up in a perfectly manicured world. You know, everything is just well structured. It gives the appearance of being natural and beautiful. But really, it's sort of this contrived situation, and everything is very much under control. And he's obsessed with fiction. I wasn't trying to make some commentary on his friendlessness or his his like bad relationship with fiction. I, I don't think that ever crossed my mind. It was more just like, that's his baseline. That's where he's at. And then I sort of had the thought of, like, sometimes there are things out there that are just really strange and terrifying and dramatic in a way we don't understand we can't really wrap our minds around and because he'd been reading all these books he saw this new thing and he was trying to bend it down into that framework he understood and in doing so he killed it so i i really wanted to evoke that sense of like this is just truly alien out there not understandable and it's indicative of a larger world hidden beneath the one we have that we can't even begin to understand um and i think Maybe just evoking that sense was my primary goal because I thought it would be a very interesting thing to try to like paint a picture of. But then this guy who really wants it to do what he wants it to do, if that makes sense, ends up trying to push it onto all these, put it into these all, all these boxes, try to force it to 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 play the role he wants it to play, and then kills it in the process. But yeah, I mean, might I ask? Mm-hmm. And perhaps this is open to interpretation. But could the fairy uh, just have been a figment of his of his imagination, a result of his living in in the world that he does, that he has to create his own story, and even in his own story? Um, I don't know. That's when I read it. I truthfully thought uh, when I read it and heard it, I thought that that was a uh, potential that 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 potential was the case in the story that he had actually all made this up in his head, but even in his head, he couldn't create a perfect fictional world. You know, it is idle fantasy, and fantasy is, like, made up. So I don't know. I don't know. That's just... I I actually had that thought, but then it escaped me, and Diego just reminded me about it. Thank you. Thank you, Wampi. Thank you. So, Andrew, what does the title mean? Because the title did throw me off a little bit. 
So the title um, is kind of like playing two things there. Uh, on the one hand, idle fantasy sort of means like, oh, a throwaway tiny story of like not too much significance. But also, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's not that clever, but it sort of occurred to me. It's like idle also in a lazy sense. Like this is a fantasy that is not doing what he wants it to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. I like I like that a lot. I hadn't thought about that, but I like it. It's a little bit of a ham-fisted title. I felt even at the time, but I haven't come up with anything better, so I'm just going to leave it as is. I think that's my only quibble. The way you explained it, that was cool, and like Fran, I had it hadn't occurred to me. But I do think the title is a tiny bit clunky, maybe just the words. So that's yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like I don't know. Well, it's a, but it's a common expression, isn't it? Idle fantasy. It is a common expression, but that doesn't save it from clunkiness. If that, if if you get me, I think it's fine. I think it works. I mean, I, I, you'd have to tell, me, give me alternatives, but I think I don't know. Yeah, I mean, our title is even really that important. Yeah, good point. I mean, I probably won't fix it at this point. I think uh, this story is firmly in my past at this point, and to mess around with it would be kind of like you know, changing pictures of myself from high school. I feel. Well, it's a terrific story, and you should be proud. Thanks, guys. Yeah, no, it's a relief. Like that, that could have totally sucked, and it would have been a very bad debut. <laughs> no, it'll fall. It'll fall to somebody else to uh, get roasted. Um, all right, the question is: Are we mean enough to do it? It's tough. Well, who's who's choosing the story for next week? Or is someone choosing a story they've written? Or we no, go we can't subject uh, we can't subject the listeners to two weeks in a row of hours. There was no subjection there. They weren't subjected to anything. That was good. Yeah, that was that was that very was, good. That was straight up good. And in fact, I think the experience might have been more enjoyable because the consumption of the story and the consumption of the podcast were seamless. That being said, uh, next week we're going to go back to. Uh, I think once we've. Uh, heard something from master like Andres, we have to follow it up with another master. So I think we're going to go to Leo Tolstoy. Ho, ho, ho. Just, 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 uh, just to make sure that whatever it is lives up to, uh, to your, 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 your genius. <laughs> and the short story we're, we're going to cover next week is master and man by Leo Tolstoy. And gentlemen, it is a banger. Just warning you. I'm excited. What was it? Sorry. I missed it. Master and Man by Leo Tolstoy. And maybe if I can find an old enough translation where the uh, copyright is expired, maybe we can read that into the podcast. That would be great. But I, I don't want to get any nasty letters from lawyers, so we'll have to make sure that it is, in fact, a uh, uh, it is in fact in the public domain. Anyway, I, I would add that we, I don't even think we have to read it onto the podcast if if it's particularly long. I think we can just talk about it and let our our listeners discover it for themselves. Oh, dude, I gotta tell you, there's 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 some podcasts where the uh, podcasters do have the rights to the story, and they do read stories, and it can be a very good experience. Okay. Anyway, I I'm gonna let, I'm gonna call it, and uh, I'll see you all next week. Perfect. Hey everyone, this is Wemby, and I just wanted to make sure that you subscribe to The Brothers F on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, if you have Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, make sure to follow us there too. See you next time on The Brothers F.